0: You can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, my name is Rob and I'm on our pastoral team here at St. Peter's Fireside and it's, it's a joy to welcome you to St. Pete's this morning. Um, apparently there was a memo about wearing green which I didn't read but got I guess. I don't know. Um, that's great. I'm in the in crowd. Uh, it feels kind of nice but anyway today we're going to talk about fire. Uh, there's nothing quite like being around a campfire is there? sitting down around a warm, roaring fire with friends and family, reminiscing and remembering about good times together while roasting marshmallows, and at the same time trying to stay out of the way of the smoke as it just kind of slowly creeps around to try and get you. For whatever reason, I've got some really vivid memories of being around firesides. Uh, And there's one experience in particular that I don't think I'll ever forget. Uh, I was in high school, and I went on this foreign exchange program to, to France. And I got matched with this guy named Arnaud, and and stayed with Arnaud and his family. Now, now Arnaud was a a Boy Scout, and his troop was having a camping trip, which was planned during the time that I was there, and he invited me to come. And when I was much younger, uh, living in England, uh, I'd been in Boy Scouts, and um, I'd gone on a a camping trip, and we had all gone to this big campground, and we had adult chaperones, and it was this big, wonderful, safe campground space where we couldn't really hurt each other or hurt ourselves too much, where we couldn't get into too much trouble. And so I figured it would be the same in France. And So I said, sure, I'll I'll go camping with you. I I think I know what to expect. Uh, So Arnaud's dad, uh, he he drove us to a field and dropped us off on the edge of a field and there were six other kids. um, And kind of kicks us out of the car and Arnaud was the oldest, about 16. Uh, I think the youngest was about 10, if I remember correctly. And all these kids, these, these French Boy Scouts, they, they were in their you know, little scout uniforms. So they've got their, their shorts, which just a little bit too short to be comfortable. You know, you know the ones. And, and then they're in their little like, short-sleeved button-up shirts. And then they've got their like, Boy Scout scarf, because the Scout's honor, they have to wear that scarf. And then just to cap it all off, they were wearing berets. Because nothing screams, I am French quite like wearing a beret. (laughs) And so there we are on the edge of a field and the adults give us our bags and they give us this trunk which is filled with axes and knives and pickaxes, it weighs a ton, which we have to carry to the campsite which is about a mile away still, which I didn't know. And they're just like, okay, have fun. Don't kill yourselves and we'll we'll pick you back up here on on Sunday, right? And as they drove away, I just couldn't help but wonder if I had just got myself into like the French version of Lord of the Flies. And so we we lug this ridiculously heavy trunk filled with weapons to a campsite a mile away from the road. It's like eight of us, I guess, total. And we set up our campsite, which means that we chopped down a tree to build a bench, because that makes sense in the minds of French adolescents. Um, We we set up the tent and and we got a fire going. And I just remember that that night, it was so incredibly cold. And I, I was bundled up in two sweaters and my coat and if I could have been any closer to the fire, I would have caught myself on fire. But then all these French Boy Scouts were still wearing their, their little outfits with their shorts that are too short to be comfortable and their shirts and their little scarfs and their berets and, and they're standing about 10 feet away from the fire just with their hands in their pockets, just speaking in French, and I don't understand what they're saying. And I, I remember looking at Arnaud and saying, how are you not cold? Like, aren't, aren't you freezing? And he looked back at me and he was like, well, I suppose I am a little bit cold. (laughs) And he took like this shuffle step. I was like, ah, that is better. (laughs) Now, whether you're camping in in a foreign country with some Boy Scouts who are kind of doing a Lord of the Flies thing, or whether you're just relaxing with friends and making s'mores, memories get formed around firesides. As a church, we've been going through a series called Encounters of Goodness. For the last few months, we've been looking at these these stories of encounters people had where they met God face to face through burning bushes and and pillows of fire or a whisper in the wind. And In these encounters, what we've discovered time and time again is that God is good. And We've kind of divided our series up into two parts. The first part, we're looking more at the stories of those encounters. And then the second part has been uh, looking at spiritual practices that we can use to help us to encounter God for ourselves, and which also shape us to become conduits of God's goodness to the world around us. Now, today we're, we're going to kind of blur the lines of those two parts of the series, and maybe this is a little over ambitious, but today I want to look at a story in the life of Peter when he was at a fireside. And then with that story in mind, I want to also consider the spiritual practice of remembering. So we're going to look at the story of Peter's fireside and then the spiritual practice of remembering. So if you, if you have a Bible, I invite you just to, to open it up to John chapter 18 and just keep your finger on John 18 for a little bit. In um, the Gospel of John, we read about a really poignant memory that was formed at a fireside. It's what happened to Peter around a charcoal fire. But really quickly, who is this Peter guy? I mean, if you haven't connected this already, we're called St. Peter's Fireside as a church. And that's after this Peter, and it's after actually this story. So who is this Peter guy? Well, Peter, he's sometimes referred to as Simon Peter. Uh, He was one of Jesus' disciples. He's known for being brash and brazen, bold and sometimes a little bit foolish. Peter was a zealous Jew. And he was loyal to Jesus. He was the first to say Jesus was the Christ, the promised Messiah who would come to save God's people. But some of his expectations for what that meant were were tempered by the cultural expectations of his day. And his eagerness to devote himself to Jesus, he would often blurt out things like, I'll follow you anywhere, or where else can I go? Or I'll go to prison for you. And it can sometimes feel like he's saying these things to kind of prove his loyalty, as though he felt insecure for some reason. Um, But I think he was actually pretty genuine when he said these things, which I think actually makes his encounter at the fireside so much more weighty and memorable. There was no way that Peter was going to forget what happened at the fireside. When we read uh, the Gospel of John, we see that Peter kind of stumbled his way to this fireside. The story happens right after Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, right before Jesus gets arrested, he looks at Peter, kind of square in the eye, and he tells him that he'll betray him that very night. And that before the rooster crows in the morning, Peter will deny Jesus three times. Now, Jesus is known for, for calming the raging storm and seas. But with these few words, I can't imagine the inner turmoil and storms, this this raised up inside of Peter. Jesus has told this guy who's been following him for three years, who he's eaten with and traveled with and walked with, that Peter, his friend, is going to abandon him that very night. The story continues, and and Jesus is arrested and led away as a prisoner. And he's rushed to a secret trial in the middle of the night. And in John 18, verse 15, we read, Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, perhaps it was because of what Jesus said, um, the challenging and questioning Peter's loyalty piece. Perhaps that was why Peter decided to follow the soldiers after the arrest of Jesus. He followed along behind. He he wanted to see. We're told that this other disciple, John, uh, was recognized and allowed to go in with Jesus to the high priest's courtyard. But Peter stood outside watching what was happening through the doorway and john john sees this and he he goes back and tries to let peter in and he talks to this girl who's kind of like the bouncer outside the door and says hey can you let him in too he's with us and and as he's walking through the door with peter the, the girl at the door just kind of turns to peter and she says you also are not one of this man's disciples are you And you can imagine this sort of tone of accusation and condescension in her voice. Oh, you're with him too? You're one of that guy's followers as well? Did you follow him too? Or perhaps she just asks these questions just kind of with an innocent curiosity. Even so, it's just becoming easy to imagine that Peter is starting to feel disillusioned. After all, he had these ideas of who Jesus was going to be. And the things he believed and hoped that Jesus would do. This was the Messiah. The person sent by God that they had been waiting for. Just like Anakin, he was the chosen one. But here he is in chains. How could Jesus be the chosen one if now he's facing trial? Now John comes over and he says, hey, let, let, let that guy in too. Peter's been invited to join the party by an insider, a known associate of Jesus. And now everyone's looking at Peter and wondering, oh, are you with him too? And feeling the weight of association coupled with the confusion about how everything just got to this moment right here. And the disillusionment, realizing that Jesus wasn't exactly who he expected him to be. It's too much. And emphatically, Peter says, I am not. And rather than going with John to stand beside Jesus, Peter goes over to stand with the servants and soldiers in the corner and warms himself by their fire. In verse 18, it says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. I can kind of imagine Peter just kind of standing 10 feet away with his hands in his pockets, trying to stay warm, just kind of lost in his thoughts. And then someone who's closer to the fire just looks over and says, Hey, aren't you cold? It's freezing. Are you not cold over there? And then Peter, I just kind of imagine and picture him just kind of surprised. Someone's talking to him, just looking up and thinking, Oh. I suppose I am just a little bit cold. i was taking a shuffle step closer to the fire. Ah, oh, that's better. A few minutes later, though, it, it wasn't better. The others started looking at Peter from across the fire. And in verse 25, they said to him, you also are not one of this his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Now, I need to just kind of rewind there. A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Um, So I kind of breezed past that in the backstory. Um, Peter didn't behave himself very well when Jesus was getting arrested. And Jesus actually rebuked him for it in that moment. Uh, There was this guy named Malchus who who was with this group that came to arrest Jesus. And as he moved towards Jesus to arrest him, Peter just kind of pulled out a knife from from somewhere, I don't know where. And he just moved to to cut off his ear, which I guess is just what you do. Um, And right after it happens, Jesus, he he whips around and looks at Peter and says, put your sword in its sheath. And Jesus rebukes Peter in that very moment. He rebuked him for rushing to his defense and for trying to prevent him from getting arrested. And in one of the other Gospels, we, we learn that Jesus then heals this man's ear. He puts Malchus's ear back on, which would be amazing to see. And ever since, Malchus has gone down in history as the guy whose ear got cut off from trying to arrest Jesus, which is kind of an interesting way to be remembered in history. Um, but now, Malchus has come back to haunt Peter. And his cousin's looking across from the fire. And he says, hey weren't you the guy who cut off my cousin's ear just a few hours ago? Now, Peter's already been gripped by, by fear and confusion. And he's feeling disillusioned. But now he, he feels something else too welling up within him. It's shame. Shame for what he's done. He's been seen with Jesus. He did things for Jesus, whether Jesus taught him to or not. He had done some good things when he was with Jesus, and that very night he decided to do something bad. And he felt shame for cutting off Malchus's ear, for doing wrong, even though in the moment he thought he was doing good. And he also felt shame for doing good things with Jesus, because those around him were now seeing that Jesus' way wasn't to be followed anymore. With all that shame just beginning to rain down upon him, could he look and meet the eyes of the man across the fire? He'd been up all night, and his world was falling apart. And there's no emphatic denial this time. In fact, it seems that John can't even bring himself to record the precise words of this third denial. All he writes is, Peter again denied it. And that says it all. It really doesn't matter what Peter said. It matters what he did. And in this very lowest of moments, as soon as he denied Jesus again for the third time, immediately a rooster crowed. And at the sound, Peter knew that Jesus had been right. The story of Peter's encounter at the fireside begins with this story of shame. Bold and brazen, Peter... It was crippled with shame. The psychologist Dan Allender writes, shame has been been called a hemorrhage of the soul. It is an awful experience to be aware that we are seen as deficient and undesirable by someone whom we hope will deeply enjoy us. Shame is a dreaded, deep-seated, long-held terror come true. What we have feared has actually come about. We've been found out. All our elaborate defences, disguises, and personality traits are held in bondage to the goal of not being known, because to be known is to be caught naked and defenseless. Peter had been found out. He was confused, and he was ashamed, and he couldn't take it. He'd been up all night, and, and then the rooster crowed, and people were glaring at him. And in his shame, he hid. Memories get formed around firesides. And the memory of Peter's fireside is messy and painful. It begins with a story, an experience of deep shame. It's the experience of a hemorrhaging soul. And the thing is, if Jesus had never gone to the cross, that, that might have been where the story ended. But thankfully, for Peter's sake, and for ours too, that's not where this story ends. In John's Gospel, there's a word that's only ever used twice, anthracian, in the Greek. And it, it means a fire, but it's a specific kind of fire. It's a fire made by a heap of embers. It's a charcoal fire. Peter's fireside is an anthracian. It's a charcoal fire. When Peter denied Jesus, it's the first time we come across a charcoal fire in John's Gospel. But in the last chapter of John's Gospel, there's another one. There's another charcoal fire. In chapter 21, we learn that Peter had gone out fishing with some of the other disciples. And before following Jesus around for three years, Peter had been a fisherman. That was his his job, his profession. He was good at it. After the fireside, he had just gone back to what he knew he used to be good at. And in chapter 21, verse 3, we read, Peter said to the other disciples, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. Which is straightforward enough. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. So much for knowing how to fish, right? These were experienced fishermen. And they used to be professionals. Yet after an entire night of fishing, they have caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So they see this guy just kind of standing on the shore and I guess they must have figured that um, well one, I guess they must not have actually been that far out from the shore. Uh, later on it says they're only like 100 yards away. Um, but maybe they just kind of figured that this old guy was kind of walking along the shore and either he was out for his morning stroll or he was looking to pick up some fresh fish for, for the day and Anyway, so Jesus calls out to them and says, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. They didn't have any fish to sell him. They, these former professionals, they, they couldn't sell him any of their wares. And then Jesus calls out to them with some advice, which probably isn't the best thing to do in this moment. Like giving advice to the guys who are professionals who are kind of burly and seasoned and and tired, and have been out trying to fish all night, and have been unsuccessful. I, I wouldn't suggest giving advice to them, other than maybe I go take a nap. But Jesus calls out and gives them some advice, and he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And they're like, sure, right, because the, the other side of the boat, that, that's really going to change things, right? After a whole night of fishing, if we just put the nets on the other side of the boat, there's going to be fish on that side. And maybe just sarcastically, just to appease them, they put the net on the other side of the boat. But then, to their surprise, the net begins to fill up with fish. And then, before they know it, they've caught too many fish. And the net was so full that they couldn't haul the net into the boat. And the, these disciples, they're just kind of looking at each other and looking at the net in disbelief. Their jaws just dropped. Like, wait, what? And as they're shaking their heads... One of them looks back at this guy on the shore. and I can just imagine him kind of cocking his head and squinting his eyes. He's kind of scratching his head. And he looks at the other guys in the boat, and he says, Huh. Guys, I, I think that's Jesus. I think that's the Lord. And Peter hears him say this, and, and he looks over too. And he begins to connect some dots in his head. And bold, brazen Peter, next thing you know, he's jumped out of the boat and he's swimming to shore to get to this guy on the shore. And I don't know why he had to jump out of the boat and swim to shore. Um, I mean, he could have just helped haul this, this net in, which was too full, and just rowed to shore with the others because they still had to do that, right? But, but Peter swam. And he gets to shore, and in verse 9 we read, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it, and bread. So Peter comes and he stands before Jesus. He's dripping wet, soaked from head to toe. And he looks and, and he sees that fire. And it's that word again, and It's a charcoal fire. And he sees it. And the memories of the fireside come flooding back. And had it even been a week since he was at that other fireside scene on that cold, sleepless night when he denied Jesus and the rest crowd? Jesus had died on a cross and he'd heard all about that and, and then he'd heard Mary and some of the others saying that Jesus had come back to life and then Peter had actually gone to this tomb and he'd seen that it was empty so he knew for himself that the tomb was empty. And now here he was, cold, wet, standing around a fire. And it was a charcoal fire. And memories get made at firesides. And Jesus looked up at Peter and the others. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. How does Jesus respond to Peter's betrayal? How does Jesus respond to Peter's shame? He didn't accuse him. He didn't scorn him or berate him. He didn't rub Peter's face in it. No, Jesus cooked him breakfast. He made him a meal. He looked at him and said, "I bet you're hungry. Here, come and have breakfast." And friends, this is Peter's real encounter at the fireside. This is the charcoal fire that Peter would remember. The one that would overshadow the memory of the other. The time he came cold and dripping wet and sat down beside Jesus and took a plate of food and ate. Freshly cooked fish and bread. It's not quite what I picture myself for breakfast. I'm more of a cereal person myself. But it was kind of like the ancient version of Eggs Benedict and chicken and waffles. It's one of the most ordinary acts, eating breakfast. It's one of the most ordinary things to eat breakfast, unless you... Or one of those intermittent fasters. <laughs> but this would become the most spiritually important moment of Peter's life. This breakfast became the most spiritually important moment of Peter's life. Eating breakfast around a charcoal fire. And the food filled his belly. And as it did, he began to notice, though, that his heart was still broken and hurting. In verse 15, we read, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Three times around a charcoal fire, Peter had said, I do not know you. But now here at this charcoal fire, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter responds, yes. Yes, Jesus, I do. Lord, you know that I love you. See, Jesus responds to Peter with love and forgiveness. He lavishes Peter with grace. And this grace washes over Peter at the fireside. It it sinks down into his bones, and the grace settles into his soul. That hemorrhaged soul, it's been washed and made clean by grace. And his calling is renewed. Jesus says, follow me and feed my sheep. Friends, memories get formed around firesides. And for Peter, his fireside memory is no longer an experience of betrayal and shame. No, Jesus has flipped that script. The charcoal fire is now a story of love and forgiveness. It's a fireside of grace and healing, where Peter is reconciled with Jesus. Peter had been cold and wet, but now here he was, warm and dry, roasting fish and bread with Jesus around a charcoal fire. And from now on, Peter would remember his encounter with grace at the charcoal fire. This charcoal fire encounter was a memory, but it was not just a memory to look back on fondly like my time in France. No, this memory was a spark. It was something for Peter to hold on to, to cling to, to find hope in. This was Peter's Ebenezer. And I use that word Ebenezer deliberately. I don't mean Ebenezer Scrooge, although I did just see the, um, there's a new trailer which just came out this week. They're remaking that movie with uh, Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell. Did anyone else see that? Yeah, I sent that to my wife this week and said, we're watching this. Uh, But if you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard this song. It's a hymn called Come Thou Fount. And it's got this lyric which goes, here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. This word Ebenezer, it comes from the Old Testament. And it's not super common, but we find it in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And there's this fight that's about to happen, and um, there's another nation that's coming to conquer Israel. And the odds don't look good. But then God comes to the rescue, and he saves his people. And afterwards, they raise an Ebenezer. It's a stone pillar. Um, and the word Ebenezer, it literally means stone of help. And it's, it's a memorial. It's a testimony, a marker to signify how God showed up in their lives and how he met them. And if we're to stop to actually consider this, this whole series that we've been going through, Encounters of Goodness, really what we've been doing is we've been looking at these Ebenezer moments. When we looked at Jacob at the very start of our series, We looked at his story of uh, a vision of a ladder or a stairway to heaven. And right after he has that vision, he he takes the stone which he'd been sleeping on and he sets it up as a stone pillar. And he anoints it with oil and he calls it Bethel. It was a reminder and a marker to say that this is God's house. Or when we looked at Moses and how God led his people by a pillar of cloud and fire and led them through the Red Sea, he then takes them to Mount Sinai. and On stone tablets, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And they become these stones which assure them of the promise and covenant that God has made with Israel, that he would be their God and he, they would be his people. Or we can look at Mary. She didn't really raise any pillars herself, but when she came to the tomb, she found that a stone had been rolled away. And inside, she saw an empty tomb. And that empty tomb became her Ebenezer in that moment in the garden where she met and talked face-to-face with the risen Jesus Christ. God had shown up. People had encountered him. They've encountered his goodness and visions and pillars of fire and empty tombs. And now at charcoal fires. When we raise an Ebenezer, we we make remembering a spiritual practice. We make remembering a spiritual discipline. And what we're remembering is that God met us God met me. God is our help. And his grace met me here in this moment. It's looking at a moment, whether a memory from around a fire or an experience of an empty tomb. It's a moment where we experience in a powerful and clear way the grace and love and presence of God and the touch of the Holy Spirit. Ebenezers allow us to remember God's goodness in our own lives, and they allow us to remember his goodness in order to see how he's been at work and spark our hope that he will be at work again, that he will continue to be at work in our lives. Uh, One of the moments in my own life where I've kind of raised an Ebenezer was on the flight when I moved to Vancouver. Uh, I had a spiritual experience on a flight. Um, And originally, when I was moving to Vancouver in 2015, it was was to go to Regent College, Um, and I'd been discerning a a call to go into pastoral ministry. And that whole story is is too much to share here, but suffice to say, I'd been really wrestling with whether or not to go into ministry. And as I was trying to discern what to do next in my life, I just kept having this—I will never forget this—was this vivid image which kept coming to my mind of it's like seeing Vancouver from above, and there was this beacon of light just kind of shining on top of Vancouver and eventually I I didn't really know what to do with it but eventually I said fine God I guess I'll move to Vancouver then Um, and even after making that decision I was just so stubborn and and resistant that I wrestled so much with sensing a call to ministry and whether I'd made this right choice to move to Vancouver I bought the, the ticket but I didn't really feel at peace about it still and but I was still pretty sure that I was following God's own leading in my life, and it's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll see what happens. And I didn't really feel at peace about it until I got on that plane. And you know how um, you know, when a plane taxis around to the edge of the runway, there's that kind of moment of anticipatory calm right before the engines throttle on. You know that? It's kind of this weird, airy silence. And it's just a a brief second, but in that very brief moment, I I just felt God just kind of rush upon me with his peace. And, yeah, it was just this overwhelming sense of peace that came over me. And in that moment, I I knew that God was with me and that he was holding me and that he would establish my step. I did not really know what that would look like, but I knew he would establish my step. Ebenezer's cultivate within us a, a living memory. It's, it's a living memory of the living God. And the point isn't to get stuck in, in that moment in the past and, and to become nostalgic for a time when our faith felt alive. That's not the point of an Ebenezer. We aren't supposed to try and live in, in those glory days. Ebenezer's are, are markers that testify to the hope that is in us that God is alive and active that Jesus loves us and is Lord and that the Holy Spirit is with us and that he's powerful to save. Ebenezer's spark the hope that leads us to live in our present moment, knowing and trusting that God is with us and that he is still God and he still holds us in his hands. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Ebenezer's are little sparks little fireside moments that sustain us when the embers get low. As we sit with Peter and his Ebenezer, when we sit at his charcoal fire, we are assured of God's goodness. We're assured of his grace. And we can leave this fireside knowing that God continues to meet us by the fireside in our shame and despair. He meets us by the fireside And he longs to create new memories and kindle that flame in our hearts that we might burn with fire and passion and love for him. That we would live as people reconciled and forgiven and restored in relationship with him. At the fireside after breakfast, Jesus turned to Peter. And he said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Memories are formed at firesides. May you remember today and hear again that call of Jesus to you. Today may you hear him say that you are loved, that he desires to forgive you and to be reconciled with you, and that he invites you to remember, to remember that grace and to keep following Him. Let's pray.